0: Yesterday I had the the privilege of conducting a wedding ceremony at the uh, Hillsong Chapel out at Borkham Hills Weddings are happy occasions, great time of uh, cheer and, and gladness and when Christians get married it's certainly wonderful The couple got married, the the boy, his father is is a pastor, and the bride, I dedicated her to the Lord some 21 years ago. Her mum and dad, I did their ceremony uh, some 22, 23 years ago before that the place was lovely, everything was great but there was an undertone as part of the whole ceremony and it was this the father, the father of the bride has been battling cancer for the last uh, 18 months and he stopped uh, treatment and they brought the wedding forward because they didn't know if he was going to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle and have the dance with her. By God's grace, he was able to do all of that. And uh, people have been praying so that he would be able to indeed be that. He's still there. He's still, he was able to, to set a goal and to make it. That's a reason for Praise in the midst of all the other stuff that was in the background. Do you believe God is good even when life isn't? Do you recall the old song we used to sing, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good, He's so good to me. We used to sing this, kids, before we realised how how much we needed to actually believe those words, and those, and especially when those those truths would be challenged, we could sincerely thank him in our situation, perhaps right now, certainly for so many things, for family, thank him for our jobs, thank him for our friends, and above all, the greatest reason to be thankful is our salvation in Jesus Christ. The fact that he knows us, we know him and we have this relationship with him. That is the greatest thing. But could we sing these words if we were living alone, felt unloved, financially crippled, had little to eat, could we still Sing, God is so good, he's so good to me. Do we sometimes find it difficult to be thankful to God? Is it hard to sometimes sing a song of praise to his name? This is why it is important to constantly turn to the scriptures to lift ourselves with God's given tools from the spiritual doldrums that we might find ourselves in. And maybe you're you're in that spot now. So this morning I want to look at Psalm 34, another great psalm of thanksgiving by King David. It it is also another, interestingly, in the original Hebrew language, it is an acrostic poem. Uh, By that we mean that each verse begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet, just like Psalm 25. And the background for this particular psalm is found in 1 Samuel 21 where David is is continuing to flee from King Saul who wants him dead because he's a competition to the throne. David is hiding from one cave to another hoping that Saul will not find him. But he is tired and his faith is becoming weak. And while on the run, he ends up in the presence of the king of the Philistines, Achish. Now, a dangerous place to be since uh, David, David, did, uh, you know, David was a hero by now and uh, the song used to go. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. So David was running from one king, but at the same time uh, he's very vulnerable at the hands of the enemy's king. So he acted insane. He acted crazy. And the king felt sorry for him and sent him away. David looked at this as a divine deliverance from God, and he wrote this psalm to celebrate his deliverance. He wasn't crazy at all people thought he was. And maybe the people of the world out there think that we're actually insane for believing the stuff that we do, don't they? Who would believe this stuff? Are you nuts? Well, who do we praise? Who do praise? Verses 1 to 3. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. After everything he's been through, David is praising the Lord. Not just every now and then, but on a continual basis. It's not a stop and start. His praise will always be on my lips. It is not something that he will do in privacy, in the quietness of, of his heart but what does he do? He will declare it openly with his mouth so that others may hear it as well. It is unfortunate, isn't it, that people get to hear our complaints because that's a pretty common ground with every human being on the planet but seldom our praises to God. At work, you hit your thumb. Praise the Lord. What's wrong with you? (laughs) When David speaks of boasting in the Lord, he says, my soul will boast in the Lord. His praise moves to the next level. You generally get annoyed at people who boast a lot who brag about their car their wealth, their accomplishments or even they brag about their children and grandchildren. Yeah, my grandson he, he flew to the moon the other day and because it took a while, he learned another language on the way there. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. But what are we really to boast about? He's not boasting in the self, he's boasting in God. And, and, and Spurgeon said that it is impossible to exaggerate when you speak good things of God. You simply cannot do it. You cannot exaggerate it. And even though it is possible to worship the Lord on our own, how much better is it, how much fulfilling is it when we are able to sing praises just like we have done, we are doing when we do it together as, as worshippers. Together with other worshippers. This is why David is inviting others to glorify the Lord with him. Come on, guys, let's do it. Let us exalt his name together. Not alone, together. When we come together, it is not a performance. We are here to exalt him together. That's who we praise. So why praise him? Verses 4 to 7. I sought the Lord. And he answered me, he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called on the Lord, heard him, he saved him out of all his troubles, and the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. This this where is this gratitude come from? It is born out of his own personal experience with the Lord. Note the words that he uses. He uses words such as deliverance and rescue and saved. These are words that appear in other psalms. They are here in this psalm. What was he delivered from? Apart from everything else, it was his fears. What does he say? He delivered me not from, my, not from the, the lions, not from my enemies, That is all true. But his fears. You ever get scared of your fears? Or are they your best friends? By being on the run for so long now, King David has become paranoid living in a dark cave and fearing the sunlight, exposure, that the world is out to get you. That's living in fear, constant fear. In 1933, President Roosevelt ushered the now famous words spoken in one of those dark periods in not just the United States but in the world economy. Of course, it was, starting in 1929, the, the Great Recession, the Great Depression, and it wasn't just something physical, depression also, the, the, what the whole of the world experienced. People were depressed, they couldn't eat, they couldn't find a job, it was horrible. And, and the fear kept feeding on each other. There was no confidence to, confidence to invest, to build, to, to do anything. It was actually worse than war. So that is why these words were very wise because he said we have nothing to fear. We have all the elements here. We can actually start to rebuild but we need to stop being fearful. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. We also cannot go on living in fear because it paralyzes us. It feeds on itself and it it makes us ineffective in our workplace in our families as we plan for the future and it makes us ineffective for the kingdom what if God's word is not enough what if all this stuff is is just baloney at the gospel and all of that you don't really believe all this is true do you And he feeds on itself. You know what? Snap out of it. Pray to God that he will deliver you from your fears, from your doubts, from the shame. He saved him out of all his troubles. He's saying, he's talking about a third person who was delivered. I know this man, but... He, he could be speaking in the third person about himself as well. And because he has been delivered, he has a right, he has an authority on what he, what he feels like, what he knows to be true, to be delivered because he's an expert on the subject matter. And I think this is true in any field of knowledge. Christians are often mocked for challenging scientists and their theories. Theories that they suddenly, from theories somewhere along the continuum, it's been transferred from theory to fact. No, it's still a theory. Whether it's evolution, whether it's climate change, gender, blah, blah, blah. It's a theory. And, and so when they are challenged, then they, they mock us and say, well, you, 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 are, you are not an expert in that. But even though there are s- Christian scientists, three, four PhDs, experts in the field, and they say, no, your faith is clouding your judgment. And they mock for it. And they're thrown out of the universities and the, from the, the government grants. And so it goes. And Christians make mistake of taking, taking seriously some of the atheistic scientists or philosophers who purport to speak with some authority, so they say, on matters of our faith. Suddenly they're not just content to speak on their field, but then they go and accuse us and challenge what we believe in the Scriptures. They don't have to be an expert. They only have to be a scientist. Could be an actress. Dumb as a doorbell. But somehow, you know, it could be a boxer in a ring. Suddenly they're an expert because he's mocking Jesus. Really? What's good for the goose should be good for the gander. I don't care how smart they are. But if they have lived in willful ignorance of God, they cannot challenge us on the validity of our faith simply because they are blind to it and worse still, they've never had an experience with God. Never, don't get upset with them, feel sorry for them and pray for them that God would open their eyes to truth. In David's case, it wasn't just his own experience that taught him this. It was also that he saw in the experience of others. So and he, like I said, this poor man, could be him, could be an acquaintance, overwhelmed by an avalanche of trouble, but he saw how God delivered this person out of their troubles. When we see God do things in other people's lives, that should give us reason for praise. If God blesses somebody materially and they succeed in whatever field they have, whether it's the creation of wealth or whatever it is, uh, don't be jealous. Praise God and thank God, especially if they are believers, because they can use this for the kingdom purposes. Bless you, brother. Don't be jealous. May God continue to bless you so you can give more. Give more to church, give more to missions, whatever field of endeavour. Keep going. When we see God doing wonders in the lives of others, that should really give us a reason for praise. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them, verse 7. There is a story of uh, John Patton, the, the famous missionary to the uh, Polynesian area, to the New Hebrides as they used to be known or Vanuatu today. Uh, one night, it wasn't as pretty and as, as peaceful as it is now when you, when you go visit those places, they were cannibals and man-haters, God-haters, everything. And one night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning it down and the patterns along with it. So they, they obviously couldn't get much sleep that night, so Patton and his wife prayed all through the night that God would deliver them. And when daylight came, They were amazed to see their attackers had left. A year later, by the miracle and the grace of God, the chief of the tribe was actually converted to Christ. And remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and and killing them. And the chief replied in surprise. He says, And asked, he says, who were all those men with you there? Who were all those men surrounding the house? And Patton knew no men were present with him and his wife that that night. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Do you believe this? course it's true. God can do anything. We've just sung it. And there are many mission stories like this. People of of God's men and women in the front line. Sometimes defenseless women in the middle of nowhere and God delivers them. Amazing. Miraculously. Wonderfully. My God can do anything. The key, verses 9 to 14. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. That is the key, isn't it? The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The fear of the Lord is the key. Hard to describe the, the fear of the Lord, but I'll, I'm going to have a very simple way of trying to explain it. We've had a lot of these thunders and lightning storms in, in summer, haven't we? With this tropical weather that we're having, the humidity. So, inevitably, you get that afternoon thunderstorm coming. Do you enjoy it or are you filled with fear and trepidation? Do you get out there in the fear and trepidation and excitement as you witness something so wonderful, so awesome, displayed in, in beauty and power especially if it gets dark and the whole night sky just lights up. It has to give us an idea of what it's like to be able to to stand in the presence of God. The awesomeness, the trepidation, the excitement, and yet the, the awesome respect of whom you are coming. This is God we're talking about. And if you fear God, there is no reason to fear anything else, really. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is the smartest thing you can do. And that is which puts everything else, our, all of life, really in perspective. And in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is linked to his providential care. Even though the king of the jungle might struggle to find food, well, even though it's not the king of the lion, the males they just lay around and you know just have their long siestas, and they let the girls go and do all the work. All right. So there's no wage inequality in the lion kingdom. Let me tell you, it's come on, girls, go and do the work, and we'll just wait here and. They just growl every now and then. Why is he hungry? Well, because the girls haven't brought the food. That's why he's hungry. So even though the king of the jungle might struggle to find food, those who fear the Lord find their needs supplied. One, uh, one t- you remember the, uh, the episode when Jesus was speaking to his disciples and, and he asked them, he said to them, When I sent you without purse, without bags or, or sandals, did you lack anything? Did you lack anything? And nothing, they answered. They lacked nothing because God supplied their needs. That's from Luke chapter 22. There's a story of an, old, uh, an elderly woman who lived next door to an atheist who constantly made fun of her faith and, and her trust in God. One day he decided to put a a sack of groceries in her front porch. And after he did this, he went and hid in the bush to see what would, you know, how she would react once she discovered the the food. And she opened her door and there was the sack of groceries and she exclaimed, Thank you, Lord, for meeting my needs. Said it out loud. And the man jumped out of the bushes and said, Aha! Uh-huh. You see, that was me that left the package on your porch, and not God. And the woman replied, "No, God gave me these. He just had the devil deliver them." <laughs> the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, uh, quotes these verses. Uh, from verses 12 to 16. He actually quotes them in 1 Peter 3:10 to 12. And 1 Peter is a letter to suffering Christians who are those who have been persecuted. And he, he goes back to this Psalm and quotes it because he's saying, look, this is the God who doesn't change. This is the good people, the righteous people suffer, suffering for doing good. You know that ever since the garden there has been this myth that unending happiness lies outside the will of God, that 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 somehow the grass is green on the other side, not on God's side. The myth that somehow God is holding out on us by not allowing us to eat and eat of the fruit and be happy to do all the things that seem so pleasurable. But the promise stands. hasn't changed. If you want to see good days, stay away from evil. Stay within God's perfect will for your life. Stay away from evil. Stay away from evil people. Don't get involved in doing what they are doing. Stay within God's perfect will for your life. That is the key. Seek peace and pursue it. In verses 15 to 18, we have God's undivided attention. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Again we find ourselves in one of those great verses in Holy Writ. And it's often quoted because it is a great promise to us, his children. Spurgeon said on verse 15 God's God is all I and all E and all his I and all his E are for his people. As parents with uh, more than one child, you remember what it was like running with infants around the house. It is simply impossible for parents with many children to give each child the attention that they need all of the time and the kids will challenge you. They'll go from one cupboard to this to there before you know it they're out on the road looking for another home. Not so with God. Not only does he hear us but he sees us when we pray. He Perhaps you and I don't take our prayers too seriously. God does. He does take our prayers seriously. This is why we need to seriously pray. Charles Swindoll tells of finding himself with too many commitments in too few days. You know what those days are like. He got nervous and tense about it. He says, I was snapping at my wife, at my children, choking down food at mealtimes, feeling irritated at those unexpected phone calls and interruptions through the day. And uh, he wrote about this in his book, uh, Stress Fractures. And before long, things, he says, before long, things around our home started reflecting the pattern of my hurry-up lifestyle. It was becoming unbearable. And then he says, I distinctly remember... After supper one evening, the words of our young daughter Colleen, Colleen. she wanted to tell me something important that had happened to her at school that day. She began hurriedly, Daddy, Daddy, I want to tell you something and and I'll tell you really fast. And Suddenly, realising her frustration, I answered, Honey, you can tell me and you don't have to tell me really fast, say it Slowly. And Swindoll says, I'll never forget her answer. Her answer was, then listen slowly. Listen slowly. Out of the mouth of bays, right? Unlike us, our Heavenly Father listens slowly to the prayers of the heart of His children. And He delivers what he promises. And what is God's deliverance? Verses 19 to 22. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. Evil will slay the wicked. Because of the evil that the evil people do, They will fall into their own traps that they set for others. Evil is this all consuming vortex that destroys itself. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. I know what some of you will be saying. I've had broken bones. So how can this verse be true, right? The Apostle John understood verse 20 as a messianic psalm fulfilled on the cross. John chapter 19 verse 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. Only Jesus could fulfill the requirements of the perfect spotless Lamb of God. And many times it seems that those who, who have no regard for God, all the things of God are the ones who appear to prosper on this earth. We see the, their faces on the shows, lifestyles of the rich and famous, frolicking with their expensive toys. But it's not always as rosy as it appears on the surface. We only get to see the surface. Let me say that these men and women, if they are not Christians, not believers, according to the Bible, will enjoy their rewards here on earth and no rewards are left beyond earth. Remember that you and I are not of this world just passing through, time is fleeting, time flies past so quickly. If you're past 50 and you haven't woken up to that fact, then there's something wrong with you. Let the world have all the rewards it has to offer, but on judgment day we will all stand before the throne and give account of our lives. We go back to verse 8 for the invitation. An invitation, verse 8, says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Another one of the great verses in Scripture mentioned in one way or another in the New Testament in Hebrews 6.5 in 1 Peter 2.3 an invitation to taste what God is really like our sense of taste. We spoke about this last week. Sense of taste and smell. Our sense of taste is something personal because we're all different and what tastes good to you might not taste good for the other person. But when it comes to taste, no one can really do it for you. So somebody says, come on, taste it. It's it's good. Trust me. And then they go, bleh, I hate it. Not until you taste it yourself that you will know the truth. Same way, this is what our experience with God is like. We have to taste, and see God. You might ask yourself, again, we ask the question, does he really hear prayer? Does he really deliver us? Can he really forgive the sins of my past? And there's only one way to find out. You need to experience him. You need to taste him. If you are genuine in your intention, why not try him for yourself? Don't just rely on the fruit that your parents ate. Eat the fruit. Taste it. It's not all sour grapes that your parents have left you. And your teeth are set on edge. Some of the stuff that our mums and dads have given us are very sweet fruit indeed. It worked for them, it should work for you. Experience Jesus. You cannot know his goodness without tasting it for yourself. Those who have tried him have found him to be more than sufficient, more than good, more than sweet. Dr. J. H. Jowett was on his deathbed and uh, he wrote to a fellow minister who was also suffering. And among other things that he wrote in this letter, he said, and I quote, we have preached a great gospel, but remember that Jesus Christ is greater than anything we have ever said about him. That's good, isn't it? It is impossible to describe him, to exaggerate about him. Do you still find it difficult to find reasons for praise? Open your eyes. Reflect on his goodness. Know that if and when he chooses the things that he's given you, if he chooses to take them from you, that he is still good. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He is still good. May our faith be as strong as those millions around the world who have nothing, who have nothing but God and yet with God they have everything. God truly is enough for us. May we rejoice in the Lord, declare his goodness and may his praise always be on our lips. Amen.